0: Welcome back to another episode of success that lasts we'll be back next week with some new content but in the meantime wanted to revisit a popular episode from 2020 the neuroscience of mindfulness with dr. David Miller So without further ado, let's jump back into that episode from 2020
1: success doesn't always feel like success. And when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but
0: without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors, and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. Welcome. So if you're a fan of this show, chances are you're a lifelong learner, and there could be all kinds of motivations behind that deep desire, that value for continued learning. But a common denominator is often somebody who's got a vision somebody who has a desire, a passion for a future that's better than today. But in order to chase down that vision, it's going to require some level of change because our present reality is typically the culmination of our environment and candidly the decisions that we're making on a day-to-day basis. Some of these decisions are conscious, some of them not so conscious, but they're preceded by beliefs. And in order to change our beliefs, again, subconscious and consciously, it's going to require us to better understand how the brain works. And that's why we're going to have a conversation today with David Miller. David Miller is an entrepreneur, a PhD, and a student of biomedical engineering. David's kind of like a frontiersman. He's exploring the outer edges of his own capabilities, his own possibilities, while at the same time, learning all the time about what the brain is capable of. Our understanding of the human brain continues to evolve rapidly. Though it only takes up about 2 to 3% of our body weight, it consumes 20% of our blood. Our biology knows that the brain is really important. So today's conversation, we're going to go ahead and lean into what is the brain about and how it impacts the way that we live today, tomorrow, and into the future. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with David Miller. All right, David Miller, we're live. We're doing this. We're official. We're official. Welcome. Welcome to Success to the Last. Excited to have you today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jared. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So
0: when I first met you, I knew that you were a guy I had to have on this show. The reason that I was thinking that was I firmly believe you might have heard this saying that self-leadership precedes organizational leadership. And the clients that we have the opportunity to work with here at the LAP, they own real estate, they own businesses, and they often hire us for more than a need. They're hiring us for a desire, a desire to realize Unrealized opportunity and potential. So they're often talking to us about new things that they could do. And by new things, that that means some level of change. But as I've come to understand change more and more, I've come to appreciate that it seems to occur in our beliefs and thus in our brains. And so that's why I'm pumped to have you on the show today. Excited to be here. Yeah. So for the listeners at home, I kind of just want to start with who you are and where you are today. So in preparation for uh, today's conversation, I start digging and digging and digging. I stumbled into like a whole bunch of publications that you're responsible for, but I'm pretty sure I can't actually actually (laughs) say the names of any of these titles. I I don't want (laughs) to sound silly. So I guess let's just start with you. So you're a PhD in biomedical engineering. Your PhD work at the University of Texas was focused on laser spectacle contrast imaging. And now you're currently the chief technology officer of dynamic light. So Let's just kind of start with where you are today. Kind of tell me a little bit about your day job and Dynamic Light.
1: Yeah, so Dynamic Light is a spin-out startup company from my PhD lab. In my PhD, I did uh, mentioned laser speckle contrast imaging, which is a way to visualize blood flow during surgery, and I hope during any waking consciousness. And about a couple years ago, I finished my PhD, and... My advisor and I, we decided to, to give this a go, spin out a company, and try to incorporate laser-spoke contrast imaging into neurosurgery. So we'd already done a lot of um, clinical work in neurosurgery, and we've been trying to commercialize the technology such that the large neurosurgery microscope manufacturers will take the technology and run with it and incorporate it into their microscopes.
0: That's incredible. So are there certain types of Procedures that you would envision
1: this sort of technology
0: being implemented in first?
1: Yeah, so the the my current day job is actually both as the chief technology officer of Dynamic Light, as well as finishing up a postdoc in the same lab as my PhD. And the postdoc role is to is using the technology during a certain type of neurosurgery, and this is during aneurysm clippings. So an aneurysm is when there's a bulge in the blood vessels in the brain. And if that bulge, it's kind of like a balloon, and if it explodes, it's almost instant death. So it's a it's a life or death situation, and the surgeon has to do a craniotomy, which is basically removing parts of the skull to get access to the cortical tissue in the brain, and then they have to navigate their way to find the aneurysm, and they place a, a metal clip on it, um, and that this is where laser speckle contrast imaging is super useful. When they are about to place a clip, one thing that can go wrong is a stroke occurs because they are blocking a significant amount of blood flow to a certain region. And if that blood flow is too detrimental, the patient will have a stroke. And so with our technique, they can see in real time the blood flow dynamics and thus determine whether or not the the clipping was successful or if they need to replace it um, to avoid causing a stroke.
0: That's pretty incredible. I mean, that technology has the opportunity
1: to be a life or death. Impact in an OR. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. Right when the surgeon's about to place a clip, you have like 15 people in there where if if something goes wrong and it does become the patient starts to go into cardiac arrest or the the aneurysm explodes, you know, there's a huge amount of people in there ready to do, ready to act. You have about 30 seconds to save the patient and interventions they do are, you know, heroic efforts. And so to be, to be a part of that as a, as a researcher where I'm just, I'm there taking data in this life or death situation. It's it's quite an experience.
0: I'm curious if you have any thoughts as it pertains to entrepreneurship. So one of my business partners, Joe Sullivan, leads our technology practice, but a significant portion of his clients fall into the biotech, health tech space where a lot of the time the idea starts in the lab and then a group of individuals have to come around it to commercialize the technology. So you're down in Austin, Texas, I guess, What would be some of the common threads around those that are able to identify something that's interesting in the lab but find a commercial application for it that's financially viable but also plays nice with the FDA and kind of the health standards that we have as a society?
1: I would say more than anything it's a mindset. There's so much great technology in the lab. People are spending you know years and years of their lives developing this technology. Um, I think it really takes a mindset to be okay this is great, but I want this to translate to healthcare with humans. A lot of the work in the lab is with rodent models or different animal models. And it's a very different game to try to translate that to human healthcare. And it is a long game. There are so many barriers in the way. It's a totally different way of thinking. The funding sources are totally different. So I think you have to be pretty willing to take the risk and to stay with it takes takes a certain kind of person who's willing to to get over those hurdles and not be too dissuaded by all the barriers. Yeah, I would imagine that the barriers are immense
0: because even the investors, is it common for an investor to really un- actually understand what laser spectacle contrast imaging is? You just explained <laughs> it to me and I have no idea what it
1: is. I probably don't even mention what it is to investors, um, I just show them videos. The videos speak way louder than any words. Showing them videos in the operating room of the technique, visualizing blood flow in real time versus the current standard of care. Uh, that's all you really need to know. And the, the technical stuff, um, if they have the background, we can go into it. But um, I think that's where the transition happens. As a, as a lab scientist, it's very technical and you're talking in the, that jargon all day. To go to the entrepreneurial world you kind of have to leave that hat behind and really be able to talk about what is the need how are we solving that need what is the business plan well the challenge that you have there doesn't seem to be all that different than the
0: same challenge that a lot of our businesses have certainly the craftsman often appreciates their craft more than the audience that consumes it you know you're always going to know more than the client in your field of expertise so I guess figuring out how to communicate effectively the value proposition of your good or service is a recurring need that uh, nearly everyone has. So you mentioned funding. How is health tech, biotech, medical tech, how is that currently funded? And it probably evolves depending upon where in the life cycle you are. I guess, tell me kind of what that ecosystem looks like down in Austin.
1: Yeah, Austin's an emerging healthcare ecosystem. So the medical school here just opened a couple years ago. And so that's really brought a lot of new attention around the biotech ecosystem. There's not a a, a linear path for funding by any means. Um, We first started with the Texas Health Accelerator Program, which is an accelerated program within the medical school here. And that kind of got us our, our foot in the door and a little bit of seed funding. And then we started doing angel investing. And that was through mostly a group of medical physicians that uh, kind of create these syndicates and invest in technology that they're familiar with. And some of our other investors are actually real estate investors who, through a friend of a friend, got interested in the technology, and we convinced to come on board. And so I wouldn't have guessed that I was going to be partnered with people who are in real estate, but they seem to really understand the business dynamics of these deals.
0: Absolutely. We have a ton of real estate clients and they seem to be wizards of the deal, finding the win-win. And certainly neuroscience medical device is going to be non-correlated with the real estate cycles.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to diversify.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess tell me kind of where in the life cycle is dynamic light, kind of what are some of the challenges right now that you guys are focused on? And what would you say would be a win here in the remaining three quarters of the year 2020?
1: Yeah, so the main thing we're working on right now is actually raising money. Big surprise, um, we're doing our raising our second round of funding, and um, there's nothing harder than raising money. Always seems like it's going to be a smooth sale, uh, but crossing, you know, getting someone to be interested versus getting them to write a check is uh, a long sales cycle, or can be. Um so that's been you know, a challenge and just something I'm not uh, accustomed to. And uh, it's taking a lot of perspective taking.
0: Absolutely. I guess, what's the team look like right now? I mean, you guys are a startup, so you have to be small. And so you're a jack of all trades or a jack of a lot of trades. What's the team look like? And kind of who's in charge of financing and leading the fundraising?
1: Yeah, fortunately, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the CEO, a guy named Dr. Len Pagliaro, and he's, had, um, he's been in the business for a long time, has had two successful exits, and so he really understands the, the financial aspect of it. Um, and so he does all, most, of, most of the fundraising, and then a lot of our connections are through one of our board members, Dr. Tony Manuel. He's an anesthesiologist, and he's actually the one who sees you know, the, the shortcomings of the current standard of care. So he's a huge proponent of our technology, and he has a large network of physicians as well as real estate friends that he's connected us with. And he's sort of our, our champion out in the the investing world.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it feels like an entrepreneur needs to learn so much so fast. And sometimes we'll talk about pretty simple model of the things you know, the things you don't know, but that dangerous mm-hmm. bucket of the things you didn't know you didn't know. I guess as you've walked into this season of entrepreneurship moving from the lab full-time into this chief technology officer role of of a startup, do any experiences or insights pop to mind, if I were to ask you kind of, what have you discovered in that dangerous third bucket of the things you didn't know, that you didn't know prior to this experience?
1: Hmm. Yeah, the hardest transition has been leaving the sense of, I know the technology, to the sense of, I don't really know how people are going to view it. And even more, I don't know the exact market business fit. And that really came to a head. I did the NSF i where you go and interview a bunch of people. And the idea is you don't even tell them really about your technology, but you just ask them probing questions and listen to their responses. And after the fact, try to see what are their needs. And so trying to put on the hat of just listening to people's needs without my own mental models of, oh, this is my technology. This is how I think it's going to be used. But really trying to bring more of a a wider perspective and, and listen to a lot of neurosurgeons and surgeons in general of what their needs are and how my technology could meet those needs. That's an incredible experience there. I think that would
0: be helpful for every business owner to go through. I guess I'd read the book, The Lean Startup, and I think it came from the teachings of Steve Blank, this iterative learning. So he talked about testing your assumptions in the marketplace. And so I guess if I wanted to do that for Delapsed Wealth Advisory Practice or any of our clients or listeners wanted to go through this exercise, what does that actually look like? So you're sitting down with people that could be prospective consumers of your good or service and just engaging in a Listening exercise without the agenda of
1: trying to jam your pre-existing solution on them or what help me understand how that would work in practice. If you were to go out and interview someone that was you wanted to sell the lab services to, what would that give me an example of someone who that might be that? It would be
0: a man or woman that owns a business most often, and the business itself often owns and operates a fair amount of real estate. It would be owners of businesses or real estate. And as they experience more success, they often experience more complexity. They start to encounter that third bucket of the things they didn't know that they didn't know. And so we're coming around them to provide clarity and confidence to financial decisions. So the actual disciplines underneath that often are tax, assurance, consulting, and wealth advisory.
1: Gotcha. So to go with the metaphor, I think it would be First, trying to get a meeting with those people without telling them you work at DeLap. And then once you have that meeting, you can't say any of the words you just told me, but instead have to phrase your question as open-ended as possible to get them to go into the issues they are having about the things you just mentioned without any probing, such that if you probe them, then they are going to go down this, um, way of thinking that is very, um, is going to, you're going to influence them. So the idea is that the, the real needs people have are ones that it takes a little bit of removing themselves from the issue to really see, to have a, a wider perspective. And that's where the real needs are.
0: That's interesting. So you're living in the frontier of innovation. And so sometimes, how does a consumer even know they have a need if you're creating solutions that have never existed before?
1: How does that <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's something we deal with every day. Um yeah our technology you know it's, it's, the neurosurgeons don't they never had the capabilities before and so they don't know they need it and i guess it's still up for question whether they do really need it but i would certainly say they do interesting um, i think yeah. apple is a great example of that where you know if you ask steve jobs does everyone need an iphone he would have said yes but i don't know if anyone else would have
0: no i mean even the industry i think of what steve ballmer said about the iphone that was ridiculous. His early response to the iPhone it didn't look like the way that people had historically interacted with their mobile
1: device. Yeah, that seems like it plays into financial planning as well, where the Steve Jobs and other people like him, innovators have the ability to take the perspective of not only short-term market but also the long-term vision of a 10 year 20 year plan to see technology being used effectively.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think certainly within our wealth advisory practice, you're trying to create a plan that makes sense 10, 20 years from now. There's even families that we've started to put together 100-year financial plans. And that's just a level of planning and a timeline of planning that doesn't correlate all that often with today's attention span. We talked a little bit during our first conversation offline about how technology today is evolving and changing. Cognitive scientists are rapidly being employed in the Silicon Valley to create hardware and software that captures our attention because technology companies now can monetize it. Some of the tools that we interact with most frequently are, quote, free. But if the product is free, that means you're the product. And (laughs) so I think it's fascinating how cognitive scientists are able to hack our attention. And it's really our attention spans are shortening. Have you experienced any of that stuff in the lab in terms of technology and attention spans and kind of our nature to be motivated by fear, uncertainty, doubt, or greed on near-term topics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of my my long-term plan is to use the technology for neurofeedback and started to do some of that. Neurofeedback is my, my favorite passion right now, my kind of side hobby that I'm trying to incorporate more into my career. And it's this idea that you can basically retrain a lot of unconscious processes through conscious feedback. And the the easiest example I usually come across is with the breath. So a lot of mindfulness and meditation practices incorporate some sort of neurofeedback. It's often uh, feedback you give yourself instead of external feedback. But the idea is similar that you can retrain yourself to increase your awareness through different things. Um, And the the neurofeedback that uh, neuroscientists are using are a little different where um, a little more complicated, you're actually imaging the brain during a neurofeedback session. And so you can tap into some of this unconscious processes that the brain uh, is giving you and infer from that information and then give feedback to the person in a way that is uh, conscious feedback. So something like a... Um, a circle that lights up in different ways to show you you are reaching this certain brain state that is thought to be more conducive for relaxation or more conducive for optimal performance.
0: So is that a skill that you could practice like juggling or riding a bike? I mean, how do you go from a few minutes ago, I didn't even know what neurofeedback was. And now I at least have the depth of knowledge that you just gave me how does one go from that to then actually experimenting or practicing some of that in their own life kind of the 101 of mindfulness
1: yeah i think the first rule is to be patient with yourself in western society we have our attention spans are constantly being attacked and so your attention span is probably terrible uh, I, I know mine is.
0: That is true. I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: like I do exercises where I you know, try to think about one thing. So we could we could try it. And so let's just think about all my focus is going to be on. I am talking to Jared, and how long is it going to take for another thought to pop into my head other than that? And mm-hmm. so there, that was maybe one and a half seconds for me.
0: Okay, that
1: was right anyway. there. And so you can do that with you know do that with anything. Trying to do that—that's kind of the essence of mindfulness—is how long can you stay attentive to the task at hand? And you know we're terrible at it. And so neurofeedback, there are mindfulness neurofeedback techniques. I use something called heart math, which we've discussed a little bit before. Yeah, and that's where you—that's heart rate variability training. And so you are measuring your instantaneous heart rate as your heart rate as you breathe in your heart rate is going to go up. You're activating a part of your autonomic nervous system called your sympathetic nervous system. And that's the one that's responsible for fight or flight. And then as you exhale, you switch and you activate more of your parasympathetic nervous system, which is more responsible for relaxation. And so every breath cycle, your body is going from kind of this checking, oh, is there, do I need to be on alert for anything? And then relaxing into, okay, now I can rest. And so that's on a very short timescale. You also have these um, timescales where you have much more extended periods of rest or um, or fight type states. But just in in one breath, you go in between these two states. And so, what uh, the heart math technique and other heart variability techniques do is just train yourself to be more aware that that's going on and start to be able to control it. That one's a hundred dollar device. Can do it, you know, five minutes a day, and after you know, a couple months. You can see huge improvements of just this awareness of, okay, I'm in right now. I'm very relaxed or right now I'm not. And if I'm not, I can start to calm my physiology. By breathing. Yep, simply. That's amazing.
0: I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's so easy to look past. At the end of last year, there was a variety of extenuating circumstances where all of a sudden, professionally, I was experiencing the sense of being overwhelmed in a way that I had never experienced it before. And it was the first time in my life that I recall waking up at 3 or 4 a.m. with my heart racing. And so I was dealing with anxiety in a way that I had never dealt with it before. And so that's kind of what started me on some of the mindfulness exploration that I'm on today. And that's kind of what
1: provoked the deep interest in this topic. I have to interrupt you that a D1 college kicker was never woke up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m.?
0: That's true. I, it was interesting that kicking in college was certainly anxious, but I guess there was an interesting amount of confidence and uh, perception that I controlled things and or my destiny in a way that sometimes life professionally can feel like there's so many things that are outside of your control. It can create a sense of oh, being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So kind of different. So you're D1 kicker. That's pretty D3. awesome.
1: Well, I wish I could say I was D1. But college kicker. College kicker, college kinker,
0: yeah. College kicker. I usually kind of jokingly say, eh, asterisk. Yeah, you played college football? Uh, asterisk, I kicked. When you're a pedestrian, it's about the only safe spot on the field. <laughs> yeah, that's why I played it. Couldn't handle it. That's why it. you
1: played it. <laughs> Couldn't uh, handle it with the big boys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll have to circle back in the college experience because that is wildly unexpected. You would never expect that, at least for me, a college football player ending up in the lab as a PhD and then creating neuroscience, like medical devices that impact people. So circling back here on the heart math hardware that plugs into your phone and it tracks heart rate variance. You've been experimenting with it for a little while. I jumped online and checked out the tool and looked at it a little bit. It looked like heart rate variance might also be connected to some measure of gratitude or gratefulness. I guess tell me a little bit about kind of what you're looking at when you're uh, Experimenting, kind of exercising on this heart math in the neurofeedback that you're getting and what you're
1: chasing. Yeah, it's quite a large area um, that you can think about. So, and people are very creative. The the ones that seem to be most effective are gratitude, feelings of love, feelings of happiness, activate a lot of the parasympathetic nervous system and thus uh, enable one to kind of sink into the relaxation states more easily. And so it's the feelings of compassion and kindness seem to turn off a lot of the fight or flight state and from a kinesthetic body somatic experience, calm the body and let it relax and kind of this self reassurance that, yes, I'm in a safe place. I don't need to be in this heightened sense of awareness looking for threat. I can enjoy my experience. Does that have anything
0: to do with why like morning journaling works. I know that there's people that have experienced success with gratitude journals. As I'm starting to kind of explore neuroplasticity, we have a 100 billion neurons and trillions of connections. And so this concept of neurogenesis, where we're creating new neurons and new connections, biologically, is your brain changing when you fixate on things that are going well in gratitude? Is there any sort of change in the brain that we can measure, or observe scientifically?
1: Absolutely. So you're exactly right. We have some hundred billion neurons and they're all you know connected in these really intricate ways. Uh, to, clar- to, of- to clarify, that's billion, 100 billion, billion neurons
0: in the brain. I mean, that just blows my mind. I mean, there's very few things in life that you start describing in hundred billion.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an incredible scientific challenge to try to figure out what's going on um and just and that's just the i mean first of all there's uh so many different kinds of neurons and then all of these neurons need nutrients and so blood flow is what supplies them with the nutrients and the oxygen they need so the the dynamics of what's going on with your brain is just you know mind boggling complex and it's so well regulated such that you know every any time a neuron fires it needs immediate oxygen and the blood fl- blood flow supply is able to deliver that oxygen Almost instantaneously, um, or else the neuron would die. And so, not only do you have 100 billion neurons, but they're always active, and the dynamics are just incredibly complex. And as you were mentioning the the neurogenesis aspect, the old neuroscience paradigm was that you never really created new neurons, and that after you know maybe after adolescence, everything was pretty set; that the connections were were solid, and you were kind of just who you were the rest of your life and in the last five ten years that's just been blown to pieces we now see that the the brain has these is able to have these neuroplasticity capabilities that are mind-blowing you're able to change your brain in ways we didn't realize and that's really through intentional effort and so if you want to you know if you if you want to feel more gratitude it doesn't just happen it takes a lot of intentional effort And it takes a lot of um, awareness to do it every day, maybe multiple times a day, because your brain is constantly changing and the changes reflect what you are learning. So if you're giving yourself lots of inputs for gratitude, over time you start to build these so-called gratitude networks and it'll be much easier to tap into those feelings of gratitude.
0: So it isn't necessarily just a personality trait, like David Miller is a grateful person. It's often a reflection then of, a discipline that one has created to, behind the scenes, create these neurons and connections that allow you to experience the world with more gratitude. Am I saying it correctly?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think even the idea that David Miller is a grateful person, that has this kind of connotation that I am the same person I was yesterday, as a year ago, as 10 years ago. And doing journaling, I feel like, Makes me realize that that is a total myth. That the, you know, my mindsets and my mental models are always changing, uh, especially at, at, you know, as you're growing into adolescence and growing into, I just turned 29, and I feel like myself now is, you know, astronomically different than just a couple of years ago. And the way the things that I want, the way I see the future, it's just always changing. And so the idea that I, you know, anyone is similar to how they were a year ago or 10 years ago is total myth. I concur. I totally agree. So I'm going to circle
0: back on journaling in a few minutes, but you started to talk about how the brain creates neurons and when they fire, it consumes oxygen. I wanted to get into the connection between brain science and exercise. Obviously, we know that exercise is great cardiovascularly. We know that being fit has physical benefits, but I had never really connected the dots with brain health and this concept that exercise could stimulate neuroplasticity and our capacity to think and learn in new and different ways. So I guess from a science standpoint and the experiments that you've observed, how does exercise interact with neuroplasticity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. It seems to be very complex, really hard to tease out what's going on on a Biophysical manner and combine that with behavior. I think the what I point to is at almost all the conferences that I go to. So I went, just went to a recent one on dementia. The research is very, you know, it's it's not clear exactly what is happening with dementia, but it is clear that a healthy diet and exercise is the best thing you can do to avoid it. And so, obviously, that brings up the questions why. And I think we'll you know, start to get a better sense of that um, as the research increases. But it, from an experiential standpoint, I feel so much better if I go for a run in the morning. And I think it's something to do with this, you know, clearing out a lot of the kind of the mental fog or the, just the, you know, the constant mental loops of, oh, yesterday, did I do this right? Or did I do this wrong? It kind of brings me back to me like, okay, I have a fresh day. Let's Let's make the most of this day. And I feel much more in my body and present. Yeah,
0: does this sound right? I think the human brain on average is only two to three percent of our body mass, but at any moment in time, it's consuming about 20% of our blood. Does that sound about right?
1: Exactly right, and I would say even more interesting is it's almost always consuming 20% regardless if you are, say, exercising or if you're relaxing, watching TV. And so that is because it seems When you think you're doing nothing, your brain is actually doing an incredible amount of things. It's always, it's basically always on. And when you are not, when you're resting, it's able to really clear a lot of the um, old, old gunk per se. And that seems to be really important for avoiding things like dementia, Alzheimer's, is the ability to clear out a lot of the toxins and byproducts of normal waking consciousness. Also, why it's so important to get a good night's sleep. Your, you know, your body needs that time to recover and clear out a lot of the toxins to then make way for the new. Interesting.
0: Uh, I've just started to observe that some of my best thinking seems to happen in this state of mind where I'm present, but not as present as at other moments, or maybe as distracted. So it seems like I had these breakthrough thoughts in the shower or breakthrough thoughts on a longer, slow run. Any reason why that might be? Or is that just placebo? Is that like a
1: cue? That's where my thinking needs to occur. No, you are you are not alone in that. That seems to be a theme throughout many great thinkers. And the neuroscience would say it is likely due to this kind of release of the conscious mind of trying to tackle the problem, the release of the rational mind. And a lot of more of the unconscious or perhaps transrational parts of the mind are able to start to have some input on the problem. And then it comes into your consciousness as this, oh. That's a great idea, but you're not conscious where it came from.
0: Okay, so if that's where my best thinking is coming from, how do I spend more time in that part of my brain? Any research around like how do you turn off some of that consciousness that might be distracting and impeding a potential solution?
1: Yeah, I think the easy answer is meditation. Certain meditation practices really focus on trying to calm that part of the brain and let the, the unconscious aspects of the brain start to surface. For other people, you know, taking showers, going on long runs, um, I, I experiment with one where I will you know, set a timer and say for 10 minutes, I will not think about this thing. And of course, I'll think about that thing, but there's a certain kind of release that comes from the allowance where I don't have to force myself to try to solve the problem, but just kind of let it soak in. Interesting. So you brought up meditation.
0: There's a whole bunch of really accomplished people that talk about its benefits. I guess from a neuroscience standpoint, can you talk to me a little bit about meditation? And then for a lot of people that it can be a charged word. I mean, you envision something if you didn't
1: grow up around meditation. What does it look like in practice? Yeah, it's such a hot topic now that it's got um, people already have mental models of it when they hear the word. Um, I think for, for me, it just means sitting with myself and not trying to accomplish anything, but just getting in touch with my own in, internal subjective experience, trying to find this, you know, this inner compass or in, inner guide that I can't activate when I am in normal waking consciousness. As so you've tried to create a
0: practice around that, are there resources or tools that you have been exposed to that you think are additive or helpful in the uncomfortableness of
1: sitting with your own thoughts when your mind is racing? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so many great tools out there these days. I really like Sam Harris's Waking Up app. I came across him a few years ago. He's also a neuroscientist, and he has a great book called Waking Up, and he created it into an app that has some guided meditations as well as just some, some talks, a lot of, of the, the neuroscience behind awareness. Uh, I think he does a good job of not being hard on yourself because I think it only I think there's this pressure to you know meditate and reach some sort of spiritual enlightenment. I don't think that's the right way to approach it. Um, it's how I initially approached it, and that did not go very well. I think trying to be more gentle on yourself and you know, take it uh, take it step by step, and not trying to to compare your own practice with other people's practice. Your practice should be for yourself and it should be have its own goals for your own life and bring bring you happiness and joy, not more stress. As a competitive person, it's interesting.
0: I find myself at times competing in things that are silly and not worth competing (laughs) in. And so I, I recently encountered a quote from Peter Thiel where he was asking himself more often, what can I be less competitive in? So I've spent the last couple of weeks thinking through what are some things that I can be less competitive in. And I think meditation certainly would be one that should be in that bucket.
1: Yeah, there's a bit of spiritual materialism around it at times. I find it's it's difficult to, you know, you kind of catch myself like, oh, no, I I meditated longer than you today. It's like, wait, what? (laughs) Why? Why am I saying that? Like, what is what's behind that? That feels like a Portland thing to do. (laughs) Portlandia.
0: Portland has a show, you know, Austin, Texas doesn't have a show yet.
1: I know you, you all seem to be even on another scale than us, but it's certainly <laughs> here in Austin too. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Let's circle back to journaling. We talked about a gratitude journal. You're also experimenting right now with this concept of morning pages. And so if, if we hit pause here for a second and set the stage, I've rarely run into people that when you ask how they're doing would answer bored. Too much time, not enough things to do. And so, this idea of adding a new discipline like journaling, like a gratitude journal or morning pages sounds just ridiculously additive, maybe with no benefit. So, I guess set the stage from the perspective of now you're an entrepreneur, now you've got a ton of stuff that you need to get done within the business, and you're still creating time for heart math and these. Journaling experiences, I guess. Talk to me about the benefits that you've experienced as you've experimented with this idea of morning pages and journaling. And I guess for our listeners that don't know what morning pages are, could you kind of explain what it is? I mean, I understand it as a bedrock of kind of the artist's way, where they longhand stream of consciousness writing first thing in the morning, but maybe unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned the artist's way, a book by Julia Cameron that's really about becoming unblocking yourself from creativity and kind of coming into your own sense of not just creativity, but also has some spiritual bends of kind of taking control of your life and seeing where you might be blocked in certain ways. And so I'm on like, I'm on week nine right now. It's a 12 week course, I believe. Uh, It's pretty intense. And so there's basically two bedrocks to it. One is the morning pages where every morning you wake up, and first thing you do so it's sort of stream of consciousness while you're kind of coming out of that creative dreamy space into normal waking consciousness is to write three pages um they don't have to be pretty they just have to be real and so you're you're just writing what's on your mind and it's a really nice i mean it's hard it's not what i want to do in the morning but over time it becomes kind of um yeah, you know, it just gets all the to all the gunk that's in my mind, all these things that I've been thinking about. They just they get to come out on the paper, and it's kind of this certain release that I don't have to hold them anymore. And um, it's kind of this a space for a lot of my subconscious you know, yearnings and things that I feel like my subconscious is trying to tell me that I don't want to listen to. It's, uh, a lot of it has to do with some of my own blind spots. They all get to come out on the page, and I can you know, reflect a little bit uh, and get this weight off my shoulder.
0: Interesting. So, I guess the financial advisor in me often thinks in return on investment. So, how much time does this new discipline take? And I guess what would be some of the returns that you've observed in your own thinking in life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it takes me maybe 15 minutes to half hour each morning, and the return on investment I feel is totally worth it. In that, it brings me into contact with what the book calls your sensor, basically the critical part of you. So as as i'm writing something you know, i can feel this this part of me that's churning of oh david you're you're not going to be able to accomplish that that's you don't have time for that that's that's too much and so kind of becoming aware of that and seeing okay you know there's a part of me that's scared here i need to bring that part with me if i'm going to do this because it's that part's not going anywhere anytime soon especially in entrepreneurship I have to make decisions all the time that seem you know very difficult and so seeing the kind of the sensor part of me the a lot of the fear parts trying to get more in touch with where they're coming from are they real are they trying to tell me something that I'm not quite seeing in in uh in the proper way um, that's kind of where there's you know that's why I think it's worth it of 50 minutes a day might save me you know days and days of choosing this decision where I should have done something different
0: it's the parable of the two lumberjacks and you're taking time to sharpen the blade mm, it's the most important tool i have the blade, yeah, your brain, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned getting up and doing this first thing in the morning. You've spent more time experimenting with how to get more out of your thinking, more out of your brain than nearly anyone I've ever encountered. So I guess <laughs> at this moment
1: in time, what does your morning routine look like? How do you start your day today? Yeah, oh man, it it's gotten bad at times. I used to have a three hour morning routine <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that, that was not that sustainable. That doesn't work. That doesn't work no um right now it's i wake up and actually i do a meta meditation before i do the morning pages um which might be uh, a no-no for some of the the more staunch morning pages people but i do a loving and kindness meditation right when i wake up for 15 minutes and then i'll do morning pages for 15 to 30 minutes then i make breakfast usually drink some coffee and then do a 20-minute workout of, of um, plyo, trying to do some band exercises to wake my body up. And then I'll do some sort of uh, breathing exercises, usually a sympathetic activation breathing exercise where I try to wake my body up and get ready to go to work. And so a little over an hour? On a
0: good day. It's probably closer to an hour and a half. Interesting. So I've got a bunch of other topics that I kind of want to hit at. Again, as I was thinking about our conversation today and trying to frame it in my mind, this might strike you as odd, but I was thinking of you as kind of a modern day frontiersman, like a Davy Crockett type guy playing in the frontiers of kind of what the brain is capable of. And you're helping to pioneer surgical equipment for neuroscience. So you're in the frontier a lot and you're doing that within your own life trying to find the outer edges of your capability or possibility and so that led you to sign up for an ironman so i guess talk to me about that decision in the midst of phd work and a startup that you also signed up for the commitment of an ironman which nearly no american actually end up doing
1: yeah that was that was quite a journey my brother ruben who you know uh, and i took my mom to hawaii for a vacation and we just happened to go to Kona during the same week of the uh, international Ironman championships. And so, you know, we had no idea, we're on the flight and everyone on the flight is so fit, so good looking. Everyone wanted to talk about themselves. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like, it's like what, what, what do we get ourselves into? Uh, and so we I had to go see it. And Ruben and I went and saw the finish line. And I was just captivated. I mean, 67, 80-year-old people are finishing this race, and it is no feat. It is, you start with this 2.4-mile swim, then 112-mile bike, and then a 26.2-mile marathon. And I was just blown away. I mean, even after, you know, I consider myself an athletic person, played a lot of sports, but this was just on another level. And, you know, 67-year-old people were doing this, and I was like, okay, I got First, there must be something these people don't know about you know, life in their body that I just I have no experience with, and two, I have no excuse if sixty-seven-year-old you know, people are doing this, and so the you know, I was I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I started first with a, a half Ironman. I did it with my roommate, and it was just a hilarious experience. I'd never done anything like it, and everyone there was you know clearly this was uh, a part of their life. And I remember showing up and it was freezing and me and my roommate had no idea you're supposed to bring a wetsuit. And so everyone had a wetsuit on for the swim and they see us and they're like, oh man, that's hardcore, like not wearing the wetsuit so you can get a better time. And we were just laughing like, uh, we didn't even know you're supposed to wear a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. Yeah. And it was I mean, brutal experience, but really fun. And after that, I, I was like, All right, I want to take, take on the full Man. And so I signed up for that, did that last year, and that was just, that was a very humbling experience. But one where reaching these body states where you just don't want to go anymore, but trying to find that extra energy to, to keep pushing yourself. So some of the endurance athletes
0: that I've read, listened to, they'll often talk about when they felt like they hit their physical limit that they were only at 60% of their potential, that there's another 40% of unrealized potential when your brain is screaming, you're done, or it's more your body. And then they overcome that with their brain. I guess in your limited experience here with Ironman, was that somewhat your experience that your body felt like it was done and you had to
1: overcome that with your brain? Absolutely. I liken it to the endurance Ironman sports are similar for the body. What mindfulness and meditation is for the mind. Um I think endurance sports are even better in that they they really link the body and mind. And so you start to see halfway through the race, okay, this hurts. What does that mean? Like what does it mean for something to hurt? And does it mean I need to stop? Or does it mean I need to just run a little differently? Um and so you start to have these conversations with your body in a way that you just don't get when you're you know just going out for a three mile run. Interesting. So the day that I had met you,
0: I overheard a conversation, and it sounded like you had just gone swimming in an alpine lake in Montana in January. So I was like, I probably misunderstood that, or maybe he lost a bet. And it turns out that you experiment with kind of the Wim Hof type cold water exposure. So talk to me a little bit about that journey and what the science says to that and what you've observed in that
1: brutal experience of cold
0: water exposure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I think I got from my dad. He always takes cold showers and I never quite understood it until I started experimenting with it. And it's, it's a similar vein as the the Wim Hof techniques, which are based on these kind of ancient Buddhist philosophies. Uh, the neuroscience is fascinating. It gets back into the sympathetic and parasympathetic activation. When you jump into cold water, you get your extreme fight or flight response. Um, even though you can physically see there's no threat around you your physiology is super tense and so the idea is to try to breathe through that consciously and try to relax through it and it is a you know it's kind of a fascinating body experience i think a lot of people are like super super hesitant to try it but it's really not that bad and you can you know if you can do i do it cuz you know i have a lot of stressful situations in my life especially neurosurgery and so it's a really good training to kind of be aware when my body is in this heightened physiology state and try to relax through it. So to simplify it in terms of how I'm thinking about it, would cold water
0: exposure, ice baths, cold showers, mountain lakes, I mean, learning how to overcome the fight or flight in your brain, do you think that that ultimately is kind of like bench pressing for your brain as it pertains to dealing with anxiety or dealing with Kind of the uncertainty, kind of that stress response that is often triggered when it's maybe not necessarily
1: the right response, but biologically that's how we experience it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I think at times it is the right response. So your fight or flight response, you know, that's not going to go any go away. And it's really important in some situations, and sometimes it's good to stick with it. Um, but often it's it's it lasts too long. I think that's what I see in our society is you know, if you get an email and you have a, a slight uh, uptick in your heart rate. You know, that's that's normal. It's how long that persists for that I think is the problem. If if your heart rate takes 20 minutes to calm back down after you see an email, you know, that's a lot of extra stress on your body throughout the day. And so some of these, you know, cold baths and heart math and heart rate variability training, it's really to stress management techniques to be aware that you are in a, you know, that email got you a little off kilter, and just calm yourself back into it so you can think more clearly through it. Interesting,
0: all right, so now we're gonna start going back in time a little bit. We talked about it briefly previously, you were a college kicker, but when I was doing some homework on you, it doesn't sound like you were an avid football fan. Growing up, people don't have memories of you spending much time watching football games. So I guess, how did you find kicking and then ultimately kind of what was that college kicking experience like for you?
1: I'm curious who you talked to. So I started kicking in my sophomore year of high school. Um, I was originally playing soccer and growing up in Dayton, Ohio, and football is just king there. I remember, we would have, um, on Wednesdays, the eighth grade football team would play, and then we would play our, our high school varsity soccer games. And the eighth grade football team had 10 times as many people in the fans as we did for soccer games. And so noticing that a group of us on the soccer team decided to all switch to football or sophomore year. And all of the players that came from soccer were mandated to try out for kicker. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's kind of how it started. And um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It just happened that one of the old coaches uh, coach Howard sales, he wanted to focus on kicking. He was probably 65, seven years old at the time. Didn't want to do any more coaching, uh, except for special teams. And so we grew a super strong friendship and coaching bond. And he coached me for three years, taking me from a terrible kicker to, you know, ready to go play in college.
0: That's pretty amazing. So, you know, there's a quote that I will sometimes bring up on this show from Charlie tremendous Jones. He says, you'll be the same person five years from now, except for the people you meet and the books you've read. So Hmm. it talks about the importance of people that have invested in you, excluding your parents here for a moment. Is this coach somebody that comes to mind or do you have other people that, as you think through who's been most influential in your life, who comes to mind
1: if we're excluding family? That's a great question. That's something I think a lot about in some of the gratitude meditations. This coach, Howard Sales, definitely for me, he really taught me kind of the power of awareness. His Coaching strategy was rarely what he say more than one thing every five minutes. He was really about me trying to cultivate my own inner awareness on kicking, which I'm sure you're you're well versed in, and that you have to be confident in yourself. To you know, the kicking motion, it's very repetitive. It's it's you know it should be the same every time, and so it's so much mental activation and just mental relaxation into it and confidence. And that was something as a sophomore in high school I hadn't been exposed to.
0: It's interesting. We all probably have benefited from mentors, but being intentional about pivoting early in our careers, in our life, to invest heavily in those that are coming behind us. Because even at 25, you have worlds of wisdom that an 18-year-old might not. You have that college experience and early career experience. And so I've found that there's value in connecting with mentors, but also pacing life with people and then engaging with mentees because I'll often learn as much from mentees as hopefully they're learning from me. So anyone in your life that you feel like you're investing in in these days?
1: Hmm. Certainly in the lab, yeah. There's a lot of uh, I play a lot of mentor roles in the lab, um, and then I, I think with my with my little brother trying to be um, trying to be a support system. Um, I know he's he's getting done dental school right now and kind of the brutal aspects of, of going through some sort of graduate school and the toll it takes on your, your health and mental clarity. Um, and then also kind of in the, the more spiritual realms that I dabble with trying to, I'm certainly not, uh, too experienced in the spiritual world, but I, I feel I've, I've made some mistakes and can try to see, see those in others, uh, as they arise. Yeah. Life is often about making mistakes, but if
0: you can redeem the mistakes that you've made, it's essentially like a scholarship, right? You don't need to pay any of life's tuition that your mentor has already paid for you, you know?
1: Absolutely. And there's so much you
0: can't learn from books. Certain people that (laughs) refuse to learn it from books, you know, they like to experience it firsthand. There's been plenty of seasons in my life where I want to experience
1: it firsthand, you know? Yeah, For sure. I wanted to ask, doing some research about your background and it seems like you're trying to give back a lot as well with like with doors to grace and the medical team international. Yeah. Is, can you talk about that at all?
0: Absolutely. So I desire to be relevant in the lives of my clients, my family, my partners. And so I feel like that satiates my need for significance. But deep down I think there's a desire that's hardwired into our being that where we seek not only significance but legacy. Like how will the world be even a teeny bit different because you were here. And so obviously, I think if you can impact another person, there's that opportunity for legacy. And so for example, Door to Grace was an organization that I was on the board for for eight years and focused on the human trafficking issues here in Oregon, Southwest Washington, you know, about five, 600 girls were and are still being commercially sexually exploited. 82% of them came from the foster care system. And so you know, that as a father of two daughters, I felt like these girls deserve to be protected. And so there's an opportunity to jump in and be part of the solution. So I wanted to do that. And Medical Teams International is just an incredible organization that gathers resources from the medical community and then labor from the medical community. And it's an incredibly leveraged organization because the cost of goods is essentially zero. They're being donated by hospitals and medical systems and the labor is, is volunteer a significant portion of it. And they go abroad and they positively impact these communities that have been hit by poverty and natural disasters and their basic needs aren't being met. The opportunity to provide transformative impact in their life is incredible. So to play a really small part in a story that's so much bigger than yourself, I find that to be really rewarding. So kind of weird how in the midst of what others might perceive to be generous, there's still so much personal benefit and joy that I get from it. So it's kind of being selfish while at the same time being generous. So yeah, spent a lot of time thinking about foster care here locally and then our youngest child joined us from the Democratic Republic of Congo and so that opened our eyes to the unmet needs of people all around the world and presently there's about 150 million orphans in the world and so, I didn't choose my parents, got born into an incredible situation. And so it feels as though I have a sense of responsibility to give where we can. And so medical teams, MTI is a great organization and a great partner in
1: kind of pursuing that cause. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it's really powerful as someone with your background gets involved with those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, it's been fun and continue to want to explore new areas where our family's passion and skills interact with needs that are unmet either in the community around us here locally or internationally and kind of find our giving sweet spot. So continuing to explore generosity and how that's expressed with our finances, our time, and our talents.
1: Yeah. Is that something that you feel has been common throughout your life or there was a time that you really saw a shift in thinking that way? Um. Yeah, I think it it evolved a little bit, or quite a bit, actually.
0: As you climb higher on the mountain, right, as we proceed in our life, you fundamentally are climbing a little bit higher. And with each passing year and each passing experience, it feels like you're higher on the mountain. And all of a sudden, you start peeking over the trees and your view of the landscape around you continues to evolve and change. Have you ever had an experience on a mountain where you think you're pretty close to the summit and you get up there and you realize it was a false peak? Oh yeah,
1: I've seen a lot of false peaks. Yeah. Life is a false peak.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so I've had those moments in life where you're pretty sure that this next experience is going to fulfill you, and so you get to there and you just realize, nope, false peak. And so David Brooks wrote this book, The Second Mountain, and he talks about kind of two mountains that you climb. And the first mountain is really a pretty selfish mountain about just achievement, and you get at some point you get to the top of that, and you just realize okay, for what? Like, what is this all for? And so then you start to climb kind of a second mountain, which is more about the pursuit of joy, the meeting place of selflessness and gratitude. And so for me, I was experiencing some level of professional success. My marriage was wonderful. My kids were thriving, but I just knew that there was an opportunity to redeem what we had for the benefits of others. And I'm still really early in this journey or this exploration, but I do think that David Brooks has it right that joy is the meeting place of selflessness and intentionality. Mm -hmm. And so just trying to experience that a little bit more and more in our life and then trying to tease those conversations out with
1: our clients. Yeah, many questions on that. It's really powerful stuff. How do you balance the selflessness aspect with the reality that you do have a body and an ego that you have to take care of, especially with a wife and three kids and a job? How you keep your resources high so that you can also give back to others? Yeah,
0: for me, it's a lot of calendar pruning. I've spent a significant amount of time and energy over the last several years in this concept of life planning, or I'm starting to call it more personal strategic planning, personal strategic action plans. Most people have a financial plan. Most people have a business plan. Most businesses have a marketing plan. But we all have finite financial resources, and we certainly have finite time resources. So we have all these sub plans, but there's no master plan that integrates all of these competing categories where they complement one another or create clarity in the midst of competing priorities. So for me, it starts with the idea that self-leadership precedes any team or organizational leadership, and you can't give what you don't have. And so even though it sounds a bit awkward, as I prioritize the different key accounts in my life, I've actually, through the coaching of others, have prioritized myself over my marriage and in, in that you can't give what you don't have. So if I'm not healthy, that impairs my ability to be a husband. If I'm not intellectually sharp, it impairs my ability to be a father to my kids. If I'm not emotionally healthy, my clients get a worse or lesser version of me. And so it's going through the disciplines that would create self-renewal so that I can show up each and every day as the best version of me so that your capacity to be generous and your capacity to give is amplified.
1: I'm curious how you, your process to get there. Was that something that started before your marriage or something that really came out of some difficult experiences?
0: It's probably all the above actually, you know, so my father was a West Point Army Ranger, and so proper prior planning prevented poor performance and I knew that <laughs> in kindergarten. And so there's always a level of intentionality um, in preparing for a goal and preparing for big moments. Got married, that's an experience, and started experiencing some success in the office. I'd say that this journey towards intentionality with my calendar and priorities started probably 10 years ago when I encountered a friend and mentor Daniel Harkavy through our office here at Delap, And his whole business was around life planning and these personal strategic action plans for executives that were leading organizations. And his content around a methodology of creating clarity around priorities and destination so that you could deconstruct what that looked like, what were the behaviors that would occur daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually, that would move each of these accounts in your life towards a vision that you had for your marriage a vision that you had for your finances a vision that you had for your kids your community your career and so creating intentionality these would be the key performance indicators the leading key performance indicators that would help support those outcomes started 10 years ago and about two years ago sat down with a facilitator And my wife and I went through this two-day deep dive, and it created an amount of clarity that we had never experienced before around our shared values and shared goals. And then we co-authored a plan for our family that accounted for everything, finances and family and the causes that we cared about and the change that we wanted to be a part of in the world. But it's iterative. So it started two years ago, but we continued to revisit this plan often and once a month for 2 hours i sit down and audit my calendar against my
1: plan and make the required adjustments i love that adjustment period i find it so difficult to to keep my calendar aligned with what i want my calendar shows me i'm a kind of a hypocrite <laughs> i feel that way often yeah it's hard yeah. to say no to people Yeah,
0: it's interesting The Daniel Harkavy, the guy that I was mentioning earlier, he had a little quip, you have to say no to the good to say yes to the great. And for Mm -hmm. me, I found that to be a really empowering phrase, because sometimes it's so hard to say no to good things. But if in the back of your head, you know that you're saying no, you're being selfish in this moment to be generous somewhere else to a person or to a category that is of greater value. It's a great thing. And so it gives you permission to say no, because you do have to say no hundreds or thousands of times to protect those few precious yeses in our life. Mm. So you brought up your family here. And so I'm going to change gears on you. And now that we've hung out here for a little while, I'm going to start to bring it. Okay. (laughs) True or false, young David Miller was asking his family at one point in time to call him Shaq.
1: That is true. True. Yeah. Was that at all affiliated with Shaquille O'Neal or just entirely independent? I would have claimed it was entirely independent, but clearly that's not true. Not true. That's well, did Shaq end up earning a
0: PhD? Shaq ended up earning a PhD. That's nuts. So there you go. You have so you kind of are. You guys were like two of the same people, minus the NBA career.
1: He seems like a very interesting person. I concur. He is very interesting. Yeah, I'd love, you, love a to have him. lunch with him. Yeah, so, we'll see if we can get him on the podcast.
0: Yeah, he'd be a good one. He would be. All right, if you know anyone, let's line that one up. Well, so I guess one of the things that's really interesting about your family that no one seems to bring up all that often, you guys have multiple national champions in chess.
1: Is that true? That is true. Both of my, I have two brothers, and both of them were also national champions in chess. So for the listeners at home, you just
0: acknowledged very humbly and quietly that you yourself are a national chess champion.
1: That is correct. Yeah.
0: Probably three chess champions, three national chess champions in one family didn't happen by accident. So which one of your parents had a deep affinity for chess?
1: So it's interesting. Actually, it started with my oldest brother, with Ruben, who you know, I think as a way to get him out of the house, my parents sent him to the chess club. And he ended up falling in love with it at a pretty young age and kind of took off and blossomed. And it started trickling down to my sisters. They started playing and we just kind of became this chess family. By the time I came along, we were a full-blown chess family. And I, apparently when I was you know, like one, I was going to chess tournaments with my brother and I was playing by age two. And at age five, I was the the national champion for my age group and so it's hard for me to even think that that's you know the same person as me because I don't have too many memories of that time but I certainly see the you know playing chess at such a young age uh my mental patterns are very very chess oriented I see I see patterns quite easily and naturally that is uh
0: that's interesting have you read the book range i have not it's a fascinating book that talks about the value of deep expertise as well as The transformative impact or disruptive impact that a generalist can have. And so that starts the story early in the book, starts with comparing Roger Federer, who's more of a generalist, against Tiger Woods, and then talks about were there some sisters, I believe in Europe, that became like world champions, competed against men, which hadn't
1: occurred before? Are you
0: familiar with with who those sisters might be?
1: I am, yeah. Their dad is actually a psychologist, and it was kind of an experiment. Of nature versus nurture, where he wanted to prove that anyone could learn chess and become really good at it. So he taught his daughters at a really young age. And sure enough, they became world champions. That's fascinating. So I guess that's pretty supportive of what we
0: now know as neuroplasticity that nature has something to do with it, but there's a lot of nurture, whether it's the people in your life or the nurture that you create in your
1: own life, like the disciplines to go learn something new. Certainly, especially at that young age, you are really forming a lot of connections. And I think, you know, from age zero to 10, what you learn at that time is going to be so foundational for how you think about the world. And so so those are the Polgar sisters. And, you know, it's clear that learning chess at a super young age for them was, you know, instrumental in, in the way that they view chess. Whereas if you learn it at age 15, it's a, it seems to be a very different perspective
0: question then would be when you have children would that ever be something that you would prioritize was that experience you think additive to who you are today
1: absolutely i think it might it might have made me uh too logical at times but it um it's something we're going through right now with my sister sarah's kids they're three and five now and you know we we've started teaching them chess and it's kind of this push and pull where you you know, I want them to enjoy it so I don't force it down their throats and I want them to enjoy learning the game and playing the game. But at the same time, at that age you kind of need a little nudge to to go towards something.
0: Absolutely. So is Sarah the professor?
1: She is, yeah. She's a professor at Yale in New Haven.
0: You guys seem to have a rather diverse yet
1: accomplished
0: family. So what were some of the common themes that you think that you and your siblings all experienced? Because you've all launched and done some incredibly exciting things, but wildly diverse.
1: Yeah, I think we come from an interesting background. So my mother is a family therapist, and she is the most compassionate person I've ever met. So kind, so patient, so loving, and really created a household where she encouraged us to explore the things that we wanted to my dad is a um, geneticist, very fond of science and math and forced it down uh, our throats a bit in a way that was loving, but you know, really wanted us to learn things so that we would be able to use them and give back. And his theme was uh, from, from Judaism, this idea called the door by door, uh, which really this from generation to generation is a translation. And it's really how the, you know, the thing your behavior echoes throughout eternity and what you do with your life is going to affect those around you. And so he had a really strong impact on on giving back to others through a kind of a medical and health perspective. And my mom's was very, you know, giving back to others from this emotional perspective. And so I feel my siblings and I all kind of blend the two in our own different ways. Well, man, we're coming to kind of this crescendo
0: moment. So I guess as you've understood your dad's call and encouragement and challenge to you and your siblings to go impact people for generations, you're at this interesting crossroad of your career in life, PhD to this promising startup. A hundred years from now, when people talk about the impact of David Miller, what what would you hope that they say about you?
1: Well, that's a good question.
0: It's like the crescendo question. That's why I saved it, just made it up on the fly.
1: Yeah, it takes a lot of a lot of empathy and perspective to try to think about myself in 100 years. It's really testing me. I think it's how we utilize our own cognition. I think I would like to be remembered for someone that encouraged people to cultivate their own inner sense towards compassion and kindness and taking care of each other and taking care of the world
0: that's, I think, promising. And I think you're on that path. So I guess in that spirit, as we wrap up today's conversation, let's think of a call to action. We talked about so many different great things today, journaling, mindfulness, the power of exercise, neuroplasticity. If you think about the people that are listening to today's conversation, what would be kind of the first step for a business leader that's looking to explore untapped potential within their own neurology?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the best thing someone can do is basically forget about everything for 10 minutes a day, whether you want to call it meditation or mindfulness. It's, it's getting rid of all of the external stimuli and feedback that create a lot of the mental models and metal loops with, inside you and trying to start fresh. And so I would encourage people 10 minutes a day, just absolutely have no inputs. And so don't think so. I even I don't like to even call it meditation because that already has mental models and certain reactions to it. Just sit for 10 minutes and listen. Those are wise words.
0: David Miller, thank you so much for today's conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime.
1: Oh, it was great, Jared. Thank you so much.